welcome to the worship service at the Seventh-day Adventist Church in Hayward, California, a multicultural church in the San Francisco East Bay that worships on the Seventh-day Sabbath, Saturday. The ministry of the Word by Pastor Paul Penno is the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ to forgive sin and save from sin by his cross and ministry as priest in the heavenly sanctuary the third angel's message in verity. Join us now as the service is in progress. There are two main holidays, well, I can think of three now, that are observed by many Christian people who don't realize that the holidays are really encrusted with paganism, and it goes back all the way to Romanism, Roman times, and one of them is Sunday observance. And as its name signifies, it's the ancient day of the week that's dedicated to the worship of the sun. Jesus absolutely worshiped on the seventh-day Sabbath with his disciples. Another holiday that is observed by Christian people is the day that many think they observe in honor of Christ's resurrection, and that's Easter. That's probably the biggest Christian holiday, but they forget that baptism is the way that the Lord commanded us to observe and honor his resurrection. There is no command in the scripture to observe the day of Easter. And then there is the day that's usually celebrated as the birthday of Jesus in Bethlehem. A simple common reason shows how impossible it would be for Jesus to have been born on December the 25th in late December because shepherds, we are told in the scriptural account, were camping out in the fields with their flocks by night and that would be impossible in Bethlehem's cold and rainy December weather. Well, what difference does it make, someone says, whether... Uh, we observe Christmas or if we want to have our Christmas. Well, one reason is that worship, which is mixed with paganism, is vain. And Jesus said very clearly, in vain they do worship me, teaching for doctrines the commandments of men. But another reason is that invariably when we mix pagan customs with Christianity, we, lend, we end up losing the truth of the gospel. We end up losing the centrality of the cross. I would just simply ask this question, how can Christ be put back into Christmas when he was never in Christmas to begin with? Now, I'm not asking you to give up your Christmas, and obviously it hasn't been given up here. <laughs> but what I am appealing to is to realize that the whole thrust of Christmas has to do with self. And we give gifts to our kids and we make them selfish so that they expect it. And Christmas is about materialism. And that's Baal worship. It's the exact opposite of the Christian's focus on the cross of Jesus Christ and death to self. So I'm not trying to rain on the party and the parade, but I'm just trying to draw us back to reality here. Just trying to draw us back to reality. Because once we confuse, um, once we confuse 
paganism with Christianity, we've lost it. We worship in vain. When we mix pagan customs with Christianity, we end up losing the truth of the gospel. And as soon as we lose the truth of the gospel, we lose the salvation that only the gospel can bring. Well, let me give you an example of that. For example, the doctrine of purgatory. You know, some believe that um, if you sin, why, you have a chance to make that up later on. You know how? You can sin now and pay for it later and then get to heaven. That's what purgatory is. You just take, you just take a little time out of your life to burn off that sin later on after you die, and then you can go to heaven. Well, that's nothing more than pure paganism. It, it means that you can indulge your desires and your lust now. You can have it all now. Well, you might have to burn and hurt a little bit later on, but eventually you're going to make it to heaven. It's nothing more than salvation by works and indulgence in it's a denial of the principle of the cross. The real problem with paganism is that false doctrine eventually, inevitably, draws us away from the true Christ, the true Savior. Paganism is the devil's substitute for the genuine plan of salvation. I'd like to encourage you during this month of December to read the accounts of the birth of Jesus in the scriptures. Instead of spending all of your time in the malls and shopping and getting gifts to indulge your family and your children and others, spend some time knowing who the true Christ is in the Gospels of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And you know, there is another birth account in the Scripture that I'd like for you to look at with me right now in Revelation chapter 12. Revelation chapter 12 and verses 1 through 5. Because yes, here is the story of the birth of Jesus. And in this view, Jesus' birth is seen to be the church giving birth to Christ. The Old Testament church of the Jewish church. And so it reads here in Revelation 12 verse 1, And she, that is the Jewish church, being with child, cried, travailing in birth and pain to be delivered. And she, the church, brought forth a man-child, or a male, who was to rule all nations with a rod of iron. So this is the Christmas story in the book of Revelation, isn't it? And this passage tells us of Herod's attempt to kill the baby Jesus in Bethlehem. It says, The dragon stood before the woman, the church, which was ready to give birth, for to devour her child as soon as as it was born. Tells us about Herod there. What a fate for a baby. Soon as he is born, someone was there with the design to kill him. Soon as he was born, someone wanted to kill him. So from his birth, Jesus was hated murderously by his enemies. And although he was 33 years of life on this planet, uh, that's as That's as long as this earth could stand him and welcome him. Only 33 years, and then he was rejected and put out. And even as a child in Nazareth, he endured it. And of course, you know how the world's hatred finally blossomed into his murder upon the cross. The world actually cast Jesus out at the cross. 
And even today, the world hates Jesus. Even though many play Christmas carols in the malls and you hear the carols on the radio, Jesus draws us back to frank reality when he says in John 15, 18, if the world hate you, ye know that it hated me before it hated you. And John tells us, marvel not, my brethren, if the world hate you. And just before he died, Jesus told his disciples, ye shall be hated of all nations. Why? For my name's sake. John, Matthew 24, 9. So we might try ever so hard to solve this problem, but the bedrock truth remains there is no communion, there's no harmony between light and darkness. The world hates Jesus. The same story in Revelation 12 goes on to tell us of the dragon that's trying to destroy Christ's remnant church. And Jesus knows the conflict his followers always get involved in. And so Jesus gives us some good news as his people. In John 16, he says, These things have I spoken unto you, that in me ye might have peace. In the world you shall have tribulation, but be of good cheer. I have overcome the world. Through faith in him, you will also overcome the world. Some people say that if you've never gone bungee jumping, you've missed the thrill of your life. Some people say, well, if you've never been to Disneyland, then you have been deprived and you don't know what you've been missing. But let me ask you a sobering question. Have you ever experienced repentance before God? Have you ever experienced repentance before God? If your answer is no, then you have truly missed out on something that is wonderful, refreshing, and encouraging. Because repentance is not some kind of beating your breast and wearing um, gunny sacks and potato bags and taking whips on your back until it draws blood or paying some kind of a penance or counting through the rosary beads, going on painful pilgrimages. That's not repentance. Or making heavy donations to the church. It's much deeper than that, repentance. The Bible talks about it hundreds of times. Far from being a sad experience, repentance is joyous. And like the gateway to heaven, like being healed after sickness, like recovering from a painful automobile accident, or like coming out of prison after being there in a long incarceration. It's getting back on the right road after you've lost your way in a distressing detour. It's a joyful experience. The very first sermon, look at it, in Mark chapter 1 and verse 15. Mark chapter 1, verse 15, the very first sermon that Jesus preached after his baptism there at the River Jordan was this call must have been important in Jesus' mind, so it's important for us. Mark 1.15, the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Repent and believe the gospel. So the first sin that we need to repent of is not believing 
the gospel. Did you hear that? The first sin that we need to repent of is not believing the gospel. That's Jesus' first sermon. I mean, repenting of only outward acts of sin is like putting wallpaper up to to hide the widening crack in the wall behind it. It's all superficial. The sin that underlies all sins is what the Bible calls unbelief. Unbelief of the gospel. And in that first sermon, Jesus calls upon us to get at the taproot of our problem and discover the reason why we have lost the main road and gotten off the wrong exit. Because the outward acts of sin, the addictions, the bad habits that drag us down, all that, are, all that fruit that is born is because of unbelief. And that lies very deep within our hearts. But God is so kind to us that he will convict us of that sin and he will bring to us the precious gift of repentance. It's a step towards eternal life, but we cannot self-start ourselves. We cannot self-start ourselves. We are born with a dead battery and we need a jump start from Christ. And so the Apostle Peter pleaded with those who had crucified Jesus in Acts 5, verse 30 there. He said, you slew him. You hanged him on a tree. Him hath God glorified to be a savior, to give repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sins. To give that repentance and to give that forgiveness. Don't refuse that gift. Seeing at last how how we have played the part of crucifying him. Yes, I murdered Jesus. And it may come as news to you, but you put him on the cross too. You murdered the Son of God. And seeing that precious truth is like having a shaft of clear, bright sunshine pouring into your dark jail cell, the light of heaven being poured into your dark jail cell. Let us think of what it was that clinched Judas in his final decision to betray the Son of God and what it was that saved Peter from repeating Judas's final sin of suicide because it helps to illustrate our sin of unbelief and how we may learn faith. At the memorable scene of Mary Magdalene's washing Jesus' feet with her tears, what did Judas choose to do? He chose to scorn her act, didn't he? He chose to ridicule her act. Perhaps he didn't know that she was, un- he, she was unconsciously demonstrating the same agape of Christ in her unselfish motive in doing it, her great sacrifice in spending a year's wages on that very precious perfume, her wild extravagance in washing it, wasting it. And get this, the love of Christ 
for the world is wildly extravagant because he believes that the whole world is saved through his forgiveness. The only reason most of the world isn't saved is because they refuse the gift. And for all of this, which the Magdalene, Mary was seeking, maybe she didn't understand it completely, but in her unselfish devotion of agape love to Christ, Judas had only contempt for that. He had only contempt. And so what Judas was doing was he was reenacting in his heart the same reaction that Lucifer had for it when he was in heaven, when he made his final choice to reject the very idea of agape. No self to be crucified for Lucifer. He was going to introduce a new idea into God's universe. Exalt self in opposition to God. It's I, 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 I will exalt my throne above the stars of God. And now Judas put himself in a position of despising that same agape that is shed abroad in our hearts through the Holy Spirit. And it was shed abroad in Mary's heart. And the end of his choice, well, it was hopeless despair. And it was suicide. But I want you to notice that Jesus did not condemn Judas. Jesus did not condemn Judas. Could Christ have forgiven Judas if he had asked for it? Yes, siree. So what was his root problem? He didn't believe the truth of the gospel, that the Lord hath laid on Jesus the iniquity of us all, including his own sin of betraying him. He didn't believe that Christ was dying his second death, which was the wages of his sin. He didn't believe that the Father refused to impute his sin unto Judas, but imputed it instead unto Jesus. He didn't believe that Jesus was the Savior of the world. He didn't believe that Jesus is the Savior of all men. He refused to believe that Jesus was his Savior. The sin of Judas, therefore, was the dark sin of unbelief, of the good news of the gospel, the truth of the gospel. And so he made his final choice to ally himself forever on the side of ex-Lucifer, who was Satan. If you have sinned grievously, please do not do that. If you have sinned grievously, even on the order of Judas, please do not do that, what he did. Believe the truth of the gospel. That Jesus does not condemn you. He has forgiven you. And I will agree, there is one... We're not trying to tell people... Well, let me come back up here. It really causes me to tremble every time I choose to exalt self instead of taking up my cross to follow the Lamb. Because every time I do that, I'm in really deep trouble. And, you know, Peter, he almost, Peter almost followed the example of Judas. Almost. And what we're trying to tell people is that the gospel, the gospel is very good news. Very good news. Tell them that Jesus said 
my yoke is easy, and my burden is light. Some don't like to hear those words. They don't want the emphasis. They want the emphasis on how hard it is to follow Jesus, how much you have to give up, how much you must do. Your salvation depends on knowing how difficult it is to be saved. This is what a lot of people want the emphasis to be on. And I'll agree, there's one very difficult thing about being saved. You want to know what it is? It's learning how to believe. Learning how to believe. Jesus says in John 3.18 that not believing will keep us out of heaven. Jesus says that not believing will keep us out of heaven. Now I tell you, that's serious. And the truth is that all of us are born into an unbelieving state. Believing is never transmitted to us genetically. Your mother or father, my father was an Adventist minister, he could not transmit believing to Paul Penno Jr. Just because you're born in a garage doesn't make you a car. Just because you're born in an Adventist pastor's home doesn't make you a believer. And no matter who you can point to in your family heritage who was a great believer, it's not transmitted genetically. Unbelief is just natural to us. Unbelieving is far and above the most difficult thing that human beings have to learn to overcome. It is the addiction of all addictions. Unbelief. It's most insidious. It is the most pervasive. But Jesus said it there in John 3, verse 18. He that believeth not is already condemned because he has not believed on the name of the only begotten Son of God. And you remember, don't you, that distraught father in Mark 9 who shows how deep the problem is rooted in our human nature because Jesus said to him, almost like tantalizing him, all things are possible to him that believeth. And then that poor man realized how awful his problem was, how that every cell of his being was saturated with unbelief. That's a good place to be. That's a good place to be because it was then he burst out in tears and he cried out in anguish, Lord, I believe. Help thou my unbelief. Now, there's good news in that story. The the moment that you realize that unbelief is your real problem, then help is on the way. The moment that you believe, understand that unbelief is your problem, help is on the way. Because a wise writer, Ellen White, said this in Desire of Ages, page 429, you can never perish if from your heart you pray that man's prayer. Lord, I believe, help thou my unbelief. The people above all people whom heaven rushes to help are those who realize the depths of their sin, and it begins with unbelief of the gospel. Unbelief is the most serious problem in the world, that, uh, in the world church. The source of Laodicea's lukewarmness, the reason for the long delay in the second coming of Jesus is unbelief in the world church. Unbelief of the true gospel And we must learn to believe 
how good the good news is. And the moment we say that, we remember that Christ will have a people who will overcome even as he overcame. He did not die in vain. He will see of the travail of his soul, and he will be satisfied. And so you have these two big ideas in Paul's letter to the Romans. Don't despise that epistle to the Romans. Don't think that it's boring and confusing and too deep for you. Luther hailed it as the clearest gospel of all, but there's something there in Romans that explodes as dynamite truth before our eyes. Two big ideas, the number one big idea in the first three chapters of Romans that hits us, may hit us like bad news, but he says both the Jews and the Gentiles all alike have sinned. All alike have sinned, Romans 3.23. So that big idea is inescapable that every human being by nature has taken part in the crucifixion of the Son of God. There's no way that we can honestly confess our sins unless we confess that terrible sin of sins as being ours by right. There's no way that you should ask Jesus to forgive you of your sins before you say, Lord, please forgive me for nailing you to your cross. Because one cannot appreciate their forgiveness unless they see the cross. It will just be a glib thing that will slide off the lips as a ritual that must be passed through in order to get through another day. Really, truly. And does that ever upset? That really upsets a lot of lukewarm Laodiceans, churchgoers. But Paul just walks all over our toes with this big idea. Why? This humbles the pride of man in the dust that we are no better than anyone else. The sin of someone else would be our sin, but for the restraining grace of Christ, if God lets go of us, there is no telling where we would end up. Goodbye to self-importance. We must pour contempt on all of our pride. We crucified the Prince of Glory. All have sinned, Paul says. Number two, big idea in Romans. That also, this number two idea upsets churchgoers, the saints. Just, but the number two idea is that the new head of the human race, which is the Son of God, has asked his Father in heaven to forgive the world of that unspeakable sin of putting him on the cross. And wonder of wonders, The Father has forgiven the world. The same all who have sinned and have come short of the glory of God. In Romans 3.24 it says, Are justified freely by his grace through the redemption which is in Christ Jesus. He died the second death of all of those same all men. Much more the grace of God and the gift of Christ hath abounded unto the same all men. So Paul's big idea explains the mystery, why the Father treats those all men as though they'd never sinned. His sunshine and his rain comes on all alike. That's what justified by his grace means. To despise that grace is the fatal age-old sin of unbelief. And now the righteousness of Christ can cleanse from the one greatest sin of all time, 
According to John's profound statement, it is the sin of unbelief. That's the one great sin. Not the mere passive ignorance of never knowing, but the active sin of disbelieving the truth of the gospel. He that believeth not, Jesus says, is condemned. And that not discloses the darkness of the guilt of sin. But what is unbelief, the sin of unbelieving? It's the sin committed by the most righteous people on earth, those to whom God's Messiah was sent, the Savior of the world. They made the eternal Prince of Glory become the the slain Lamb of God by the people who slew him. The cross of Christ extends its arms over the universe of God. The truth of eternity is encapsulated in time at Calvary so that we may see it. Unbelief is the sin of cherishing hard hearts that cannot be melted by that, of eyes that cannot shed tears of repentance, of souls that survey the wondrous cross with callous disregard. It's the sin of hearts that are unmoved by the love that constrains any believing heart to total consecration to the one who died our second death for us. It's poisonous sin. It's the most subtle, the most deadly of all time. A heart that can't be moved by the cross. Unbelief is a sin that has infiltrated the great world church of Laodicea, the seventh church, and the last of all time. It's the church that torments the resurrected Son of God to the point of acute nausea. Each individual professed believer in Christ is a microcosm of the world church. No one is holier than anybody else in the world church. All of us have a shared sin of unbelief in the truth of the gospel, which is the murder of the Son of God. All of us desperately need a shared repentance before God. All of us are awaiting and praying for a long-awaited Elijah message who will proclaim a heart reconciliation the final atonement. Let's not cap off history by crucifying the Lamb of God afresh. Let's overcome where ancient Israel failed. Let's overcome. To believe in Christ is to let one's little shriveled up selfish heart to be enlarged, to let it be quickened, to be made alive, to at least begin to comprehend the length and the breadth and the depth and the height of the love of Christ, which passes knowledge, to get beyond our callous hard-heartedness toward the message of his cross. It's painful, not because the Lord wants to hurt us, but because he has brought forth, he has been brought forth in iniquity. You know, we have been brought forth in iniquity that every Cell, every cell of our body when we were born was saturated in egocentricity. And it's like, have you ever done this? I suppose I'm the only one. You sit with your legs crossed, and what happens to your leg? It goes to sleep. And then you lose consciousness that your leg is even there. And it feels as though it is not there. And then when you try to stand up, it's not there. 
it's gone. And when it does begin to wake up, it starts to tingle. It may even hurt a little bit. But life is coming back in through the blood. And when you are converted, you're being born again. And it tingles with painful feelings. This is the experience of repentance. It's it's always painful to be born. It's much nicer to stay snug and cozy in mama's womb. Because you don't have to face the world. You're protected. You're secure. But your creator and your savior says, be born again. Come out into the world and face reality. Be what you are. Share this life of new birth with the author of it, Jesus. So the new covenant gospel assures you that even though you have left the womb, you are still as secure in the battlefields of life, as if you were still in the womb. And the Lord assures you, I will never leave you or forsake you. So we may boldly say, the Lord is my helper. I will not fear. What can man do to me? And so now, instead of cozying up in the womb, you are living by faith. Yes, you're getting knocked around, but Jesus is with you. It's exciting living with Jesus. Ah, there's no dull moment, I'll tell you that. Living with Jesus. The knocks in life just stir up what's already in here. And you say, thank you, Lord. I didn't know that was still there. And I'm totally embarrassed. That's why I come to you. Lay that at the cross of Christ. But to refuse to be born again, that is the sin of unbelief. To refuse to come out into the world and live it with Christ and to stay back into our sheltered security is unbelief. God is not saying that you must do this or do that in order to be saved eternally, but he tells us you must believe. Without faith, it is impossible to please him, for he who comes to God must believe that he is and that he is a rewarder of those who diligently seek him. Hard work. It's hard work learning to believe. Hard work. It's going to stretch every muscle of your soul to choose to exercise the faith that has been planted within you by God. But it's the beginning of eternal life. Kareem was a Muslim, and he moved to America many decades ago, and he worked at a restaurant And he became friends with one of the patrons, uh, uh, or or pardon me, he he went to a restaurant and there was a waitress there by the name of Sue who waited upon him. And over the course of time, the two of them developed a special friendship and they decided that they wanted to get married. And so Sue decided to take Kareem home and introduce him to to her family. Uh, her family was a lifelong Christians. That's right. This girl took a Muslim home to a Christian home to introduce them and say, we're going to get married. Mother was Edna. How do you think that went over? How do you think that went over? Well, at that moment, Edna, the mother, was coming face to face with one of those creatures who was an unbeliever. And she was faced with a decision. Would 
Kareem be nothing more than a hopeless unbeliever to her or a person in the need of God's grace? Well, in loving gentleness, here's how she responded to their desire to get married. She said, I don't think so. You two aren't getting married, but Kareem, I'd like for you to come to church with us. Well, Kareem reluctantly agreed, but all along he thought, you know, Christianity, this stuff is foolish religion. Why should someone else die for my sins? Uh, I don't need that kind of charity. He said to himself, these people are weak. They should have to pay for their own sins instead of someone else doing it for them. But over the course of time, Kareem felt his defenses becoming weak. And he said, God's word of love and the cross is bigger than me. And gradually God's word, the gospel, was convicting Kareem of his sins and pointing him to the one who can take away the burden of sin. And he made the choice to be baptized into Christ and to join the fellowship of God's people. Yes, grace can reach the heart of unbelievers. If he can do that for a Muslim, he can do that for you and for me. Join us again next time for the word of God which will feed the soul. I am committed to bring you the fullness of the gospel as Jesus has revealed it to us in order to prepare a people for his soon coming.